We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, greetings. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon. We're doing Politics Friday, and we've been doing a study of Van Drunen's book, but uh, you tell me we're going to jump off and go do we're something else today <laughs> we're, we're switching hampton it's like us on the golf course if you're hitting then we just go straight down the course but if i'm hitting you know we take lots of detours oh, okay <laughs> so, okay so since we're playing my golf ball so to speak today we're gonna take some detours but i think it's critical so the question i want to ask you to begin our time this morning on Friday politics is, are you excited? Yes, I'm excited. <laughs> okay, me too. So let's start out with uh, reviewing Van Drunen. We, we don't want to lose the progress we've made, right? We want to keep pounding it in. So number one, Van Drunen made four essential points about governments in the world as they've existed through time and as they exist today. His first point was they're legitimate. It, that's legitimate under God's dominion to have human governments. But number two, they're provisional. They're not the final answer in God's plan. They have a termination. So they're provisional, you know, for in the meantime, till the ultimate kingdom gets here. Number three, they are common, which means they apply to all people. Uh, who's ever under their dominion and the rules apply uh, the same to everybody. Number four, they're accountable. And we always point out the example of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the example par excellence in the Bible. If you, if you get too far off the track, any government, God will subdue it. He'll yeah, as, a, as I've been reading through the Bible, this, in the mornings, I keep seeing references that this is going to happen to you like it did to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's mentioned many times. Yes. And have you ever noticed, I can't give you the exact verse. It's either in Jeremiah or Isaiah. We'll, we'll try to get it maybe for next time. But when they pinpoint, when, when they look back on Sodom and Gomorrah and pinpoint the precise issue it is so interesting because they don't say what's on the surface. They, they say the real issue in Sodom and Gomorrah was pride. How accurate is that? Interesting. Yeah. And so we have parades, don't we? Gay, right. gay pride. <laughs> and you see that and you're just going, it is just straight from the Bible. Is you know they they don't know that and and they don't think that's what they're doing but that is exactly the issue in the homosexual community is pride when you get down underneath everything else that's what they're really struggling with right that's the ultimate think of Romans one uh, God creating male and female for instance Romans one is shaking your fist at God and saying, I will not be what you made me to be. It's, it's the ultimate in that. So uh, number two from Van Drunen. So number one was we saw his four uh, 
criteria about governments. Number two, which was so good on his part to ground everything in the Noahic covenant. Oh, that was, it was so good. And so mm -hmm. what the takeaway from that, that's Genesis nine, one through six or so that whole, that whole context there. But the takeaway from that is that that is a covenant God has with all mankind. So it's universal and it's laying out family enterprises, uh, business enterprises, and legal enterprises. And those, those are the essence of government, right? So when you apply that to our modern time, um, how should a Christian think through the current political events? Well, think through them like this. Whatever in politics supports the family, support that. Whatever in politics supports business, support that. Whatever in politics supports a, a good legal system, support that, right? Pretty simple. And all governments do that. It, it's always been so interesting to me, Hampton, you know, having grown up as an atheist, how often uh, people are doing exactly what God planned for them to do, whether they know it or not, whether, whether they're thinking biblically, they are by nature doing what God created a human being to do. It's, it's fun to observe it that way. Right. So then we talked about, again, from Van Drunen, point number three, uh, that the best way to run a government is through natural law. And we laid out an analogy, right, of like Tesla seeing the electromagnetic world as the ether. And you can't see it, you can't feel it, but it is exactly there. And that's why his experiments were working exactly as he designed them to work. And people have not really, outside of Eric Dollard, be able to recreate his stuff because they don't see the ether the way he saw it. So it is with the natural law. The natural law is the moral fabric of God's creation. It's really there, though you can't see it, and it really works. When you tap into it, it provides positive results. And so then we discuss, well, how do you tap into it? What is the access point of the natural law since it imbues our entire creation and you access it through wisdom? Okay. So, so those are the essential uh, points we've covered. And the last one was number five. So so what now? <laughs> okay, we got all that stuff down. Now what do you do? Now you realize it, that's a big answer, but part of the answer is that we are sojourners and aliens at this time in history. And, and we have been since Genesis chapter three. Mankind has been sojourners and aliens. You see no greater example of that than the life of Abraham. The guy basically wandered around. Right. right, all all over the promised land for for a, a century. <laughs> so, yeah. right, he's he's the prototype of that. But then we look specifically. You remember looking specifically at an example of uh, Judah, the kingdom of Judah being taken captive to Babylon, and Jeremiah writing the refugees a letter in Jeremiah twenty nine, saying, "This is how you ought to do it." Now, now that you're refugees away from the promised land. Uh, basically, you guys are sojourners and aliens, so participate in the culture, right? Have families, have children, support the things that support Babylon, you know, the healthy things, right? and so on. So it's, it's exactly like a letter written to us today, how to exist in the United States. But it's hard to, uh, it's hard to always keep that in the forefront of your mind, because the United States has been, in many ways, such a success that it, it's easy to think, you know, boy, we're here. I've got two refrigerators, three cars. Um, I yeah. get up, and, you know, it, but it's not the case. We're sojourners and aliens, and this whole thing is going to follow what I refer to often. You've heard me already a couple times referred to Plan A. We're going to lay that out at some point in the future. We'll, we'll lay out plan A in explicit detail. But so that was Van Drunen. That's where we've been. Okay. So here's where we're going. We're jumping off. Where are we so, headed? 
well, imagine we're on a train and we're jumping off onto a different train and this is where we're headed. Um, I want to raise this question. I, I want us to have a full, mature, Christian worldview of what it means to be a human being. Think of how, you, you know, our other podcast where we discuss uh, worldview and basically now through the lens of Truman is, is tracing for us how sexual identity has become so critical in, in modern politics and Truman's laying out how we got there. Well, I want us to know exactly what a human being is because it applies uh, directly to politics. You've heard me say before, how I think the Bible is actually the most political book I've ever read. Right, right. <laughs> and a lot of people, when they first hear that, you know, that just bounces off. You know, they, they, don't, they don't have a category for that. They don't understand what I'm saying. It really is. So I want to dive back into that uh, so that we can catch up, in a sense, to Van Drunen. But I want to lay some groundwork for what a human being really is, because it applies directly to our subject of Friday politics. So in order to do that, you know I can never escape uh, my own hard, hard wiring, right? I'm always, yeah. I'm always a teacher. I know that frustrates people, but teaching and coaching for me are the same thing. So whenever I think about a subject, I usually think about how to communicate that subject, not just talk about it, but how to impart that right? How to coach it to somebody. So when I think of the question, well, what really is a human being? My brain first goes to, well, I need a good systematic theologian to teach me that. I mean, you, you always need the, the groundwork of the text. That's God's written word. That's the basis for everything. But if you had a really good systematic theologian, um, like I think an acquaintance of yours, but a good friend of mine over time, right? Charles Ryrie. Right. Systematic uh, theology. Systematic yeah. theology. I mean, that that was him. And I can't tell you how many funny conversations we had, you know, over lunches because I'm not a systematic theologian. <laughs> you know how uh, there are specialties in every profession, right? Like the, oh, yeah. some docs are surgeons, some docs are um more like microbiologists, some of them some are just, family just, practice, right? Some, some just do hands. Some, yeah, so the orthopedic guys, and even with orthopedics, they'll just do hands, some will do knees, some will do shoulders, and so on. So anyway, within theology, people have specialties, and Charles was a systematic theologian. So for him, he ultimately you know, saw most questions as being wrapped up in a tidy answer, you know, fit in a nice block that inserted into a really nice structure and it all made perfect logical sense. Right. And here I am hitting my golf ball everywhere. You know, I'm going at, you know, I don't see it that way, Charles. So there's another branch of theology that's called biblical theology. Right. Biblical, the, the difference between biblical theology and systematic, I've already explained systematic by Charles tying up nice answers into blocks that he inserted into a building. Everything worked out just right until you pointed to certain passages that didn't seem to fit that. But, but biblical theology is a little different in that it approaches the text through the human author. So for instance, if I asked a question about sin, Charles would synthesize the entire biblical revelation on sin and give you an answer, right. okay? There's another way to look at that. Like, what did John think about sin? What did Paul think about sin? What did Moses think about sin? And if you follow that line of thought, you develop your questions and categories from the human authors themselves. Like when Kathy and I first got married, it used to frustrate her amongst a thousand other things, but it would frustrate her to no end when she'd ask, 
you know, a passage or something. And I'd say, but that sounds like John. And then that would confuse her. Like, why wouldn't I say, uh, well, the Bible said, you know, I'm thinking through right. the human author, right? I would say, oh, well, Paul discussed that when he was talking to the Corinthians about X or Moses said, you know, and that she, did, she didn't see it that way. But that was so natural to me to think through the human authorship, not, not at all minimizing the divine authorship, but both of those things are there a hundred percent. God wrote it and John wrote it. Well, a a classic example would be what does Paul say about justification and what does James Mm -hmm. say about justification? Yes. And see, Charles would just instantly synthesize that. Right. And I would be more like, well, let me just hear from James for for a little bit. You know, I want to I want to get him down before I, I put the whole thing together. So today, to answer the question, what exactly is a human being? I'm not going to pick up the tool of systematic theology, not because that's a bad tool. It's a great tool. It's just not the one I gravitate to the most. I gravitate towards biblical theology. And so I pick up a guy, one of my favorites. I got got to tell you this little side story because it makes this so fun. I don't think this guy's all that popular. And I think he's basically unsurpassed in that field. And you know, uh, Eugene Merrill. Oh, yeah. So he's got a a fantastic book, uh, Everlasting Dominion. And it's essentially an Old Testament biblical theology. The last time I saw Dr. Merrill, I think I was in San Diego at one of the ETS meetings, and and I'd had a few classes with him, and uh, he said, oh, Bob, how you doing? You know, I said, hi, Dr. Merrill, because I I always call him Dr. Merrill because that's how I see him. You know, I learned, I learned so much. Well, he's still 20 years older than you. (laughs) And that's saying a lot because I'm I'm progressing. I I talked to him a couple weeks ago. He's so great. So he said, uh, you know, how's your daughter doing? Because he knows who Sophia is. He's never met her, but he knows who she is. And at that time, oh, Sophia was maybe 15, 14 or 15 years old or something. I said, "She's, she's doing really well, Dr. Merrill. You know, if you were to ask her, what the book of Deuteronomy is, she would tell you that's a suzerain vassal treaty with a prologue, you know, a historical prologue and the basic stipulations and the specific stipulations, the witnesses, the blessings and curses. I said, that's how she sees that book. He almost started to cry. <laughs> he goes, I'm so happy. <laughs> he goes, we ask our students that on their Old Testament doctoral exams and they don't get that answer. <laughs> he was so happy. Someday we'll talk about the book of Deuteronomy. But so anyway, we're going to turn to Merrill's biblical theology and read from him and see what it is that a human being actually is. But we're going to lay, lay some groundwork here. Okay, hold on to your seat. We have already proposed that Exodus 19, 4 through 6 is, a, is central in addressing the question as to the origins and role of the nation of Israel a question that most certainly that must certainly have dominated the thinking of its theologians and to which Moses felt impelled to seek satisfying answers. So let's pause there for a second. It might seem a little strange if we're going to talk about exactly whom a human being is to start in Exodus chapter 19, verse four through six. But as you know, Hampton, I've discussed the joy it is to me on the podcast to communicate through what I call theological conversation. It's so much more fun for me than a class. It's so much more fun for me than a textbook. It's the value of talking through these things is is so fun for me. And when you have conversational theology, you start in different places. Right. 
So when I say, when I read Merrill there and he referred to Exodus 19, four through six, I wonder how many of our listeners have that passage in their mind, because you should. That, that's not um, some strange, obscure quote. That is central to a lot of theology in the Old Testament, of course, applies brilliantly to the New Testament. So I'm going to read this, but I'm going to read it with the caveat that I don't want to have to read this to people more than once. So not, now I'm getting back to coaching. And that's so... <laughs> So, uh, for instance, I used to say, you know, with speaking to pastoral groups, I'd say, you know, if somebody asks you a question and you don't know, just say you don't know. (laughs) That's okay. But don't say that more than once to the same question. Yes. After they ask you, then you go to say, I don't know, but then you go find out the answer. So here's... uh, Exodus 19, (laughs) we'll read it once, because after that, people need to know it. Uh, This is a course on Mount Sinai, God speaking with Moses. Verse 3, we'll start in verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Thus you shall tell the house of Jacob, and declare to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I lifted you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you are willing to listen to me and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession out of all the nations, for all the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. So critical, God giving his very purpose for calling, for birthing Israel out of Abraham and then calling them out of Egypt, right? The the nation of Israel's job description was to be a kingdom of priests to reach the entire earth with God's message. That was their very purpose. Now imagine that your name isn't Hampton, but it's Itzhak. (laughs) imagine you're not living in the year 2021 you're living in well when was the exodus like 1450 or so sometime around there bc and you've just come through the red sea and you're sitting there with your family and moses had come down with the mountain and and said those verses here's god's plan for us (laughs) right imagine your dinner conversation like who are we anyway? Who imagine the questions that would come up? Let me let me read Merrill because it's so important. Israel's role would be worked out in the framework of a covenant, the introduction to which makes clear that though Israel was but one nation among many, it was the special object of God's concern, his treasured possession. Then From all the choices available to him, the Lord sanctified Israel to himself and charged it with the privileged responsibility of mediating his gracious plan of salvation to the whole world. This stunning revelation would certainly have led thoughtful persons. See, Hampton, I'm saying you were thoughtful. I'm saying you were the thoughtful Itzhak back then. And what set of circumstances led to God's choice of Israel as his means of bringing it about? So here here would be the questions. This stunning revelation would certainly have led thoughtful persons to ask how it was that the nations needed redemption and reconciliation And what set of circumstances led to God's choice of Israel at his means of bringing it about? So, for instance, let's step outside the text for just a second and apply just a portion of that. I always, you know, you know, I didn't come to faith till I was an adult. I was 21 years old and raised as an atheist. And subsequently, in the classes at seminary and so on, and people talk about the gospel and being saved and so on. 
let me tell you, you say that to an atheist, they don't know what you're talking about, right? You know, are you saved? They don't, they don't know <laughs> what they need to be. They, don't. Be, they have no idea, right? No idea what that even would what do relate I need, to. What do I need to be saved from? Yeah. What, and, and very few Christians answer that question well. If I were to say at that time, save from what? I think a lot of them would say, save from your sin, I think. But I would say, well, you know, what's, what do you mean, my sin? You, it, right? All of a sudden, things start getting much deeper than we typically ask. So here's God saying to Isaac, coming out of Egypt and sitting there on the plains of Moab or so around Mount Sinai. And Moses comes down and, hey, we're going to be a, a kingdom of priests to all the other nations. Uh, <laughs> okay, like who, priests of who? Who is God actually? And who are we? And why did you choose us, right? All those kinds of questions. They're, they're just critical to think through. It's critical to see the text that way. Let me read on with Merrill. Moses, therefore, needed to provide a brief history of the world. Isn't that what you're reading when you pick up Genesis? You start in verse chapter one, verse one. You are reading Moses's account, inspired by God, of the history of the world. So one adequate, at least, you know, a history adequate, at least, to trace the origins of the nations within Israel's purview of special importance would be the discovery of Israel's roots and how they intertwined around those of all the other peoples. Are you starting to pick up how political the Bible really is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but for Israel to know these things without knowing why they in particular existed would leave the story incomplete. The more fundamental question, therefore, was the question of ultimate beginnings. Who is God? What has he done? How and why did the nations originate? And what was the cause of the moral and spiritual crises that testified to their alienation from God that only he could redress? So back to the gospel. The gospel, at its very core, is putting mankind back with God, right? It's, it's putting a human being face-to-face -face with God again because that was the state of the original creation and it, it was lost, right? Mm -hmm. God left the garden, well, kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden upon the fall. The fall was sin and so on. You, you know the story from there, but that's how to answer that question. And so we've alluded to this. I have a couple times. We'll come back to it at a, at a later podcast, Hampton, but we'll trace plan A through the Bible. You don't want but, to do plan B? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. I had a phone call two weeks ago. A guy called me and he, I'm not going to mention names, but he said, man, it, it was a well-known preacher throughout the country. You you would know them if, if I said the name and uh, our listeners would know them. And they said they were, you know, sort of being trained in that individual's theology. And they, they just turned, you know, it was through like a videotape and they just turned the machine off. They, they said, well, that's not what Bob said. <laughs> and they, because the guy had spoken about plan B that sometimes in, in life, you know, we've, we take such terrible turns and directions that we thwart God's plan for us. And, you know, so God has to make a plan B and mm -hmm. I, 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 he did it flat out. That's what he was saying. And my friends were like, that is not what Bob said. And so here's my example of that. Do you think, uh, Joseph's brothers made some bad decisions <laughs> like, oh, yeah. when they decided to kill him <laughs> <laughs> and they instead they sell him into slavery down to Egypt, right? It's terrible, right? So it's hugely sinful. It can't possibly be the plan of God 
Well, later on, when Joseph confronts them, and now Joseph runs all Egypt, which is the most powerful nation on earth, and you see him in his full glory, right? And he says, I know, you, your thoughts for me were evil, but God meant them for good. Here's why all this happened. He sent me here to prepare the way for you. And so it's plan A, the whole way. Oh, yeah. He, you couldn't have worse decisions. So and I gotta, it, it was plan A. I got to tell you, I don't know where I heard this, but it's, you know, some sermon somewhere many, many years ago. And the t- it was about having 50 20 vision. <laughs> where does that idea come from? That's Genesis 50 20. And so I've never forgotten the address for God meant what, you know, you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's so, so that's always stuck. So if anybody's listening, that'll help you remember where that verse is found. Doesn't, doesn't it? I mean, that's so sometimes preachers slash teachers are so good that you, you never forget what they say. I mean, they say it one time and it just really sticks. Yeah. That's so good. So Anyway, so we're talking about God's plan A here. In the beginning, uh, the Lord was with Adam in the garden. In the end, God will be with mankind in the new Jerusalem. That's plan A. That's never going to change. Everything that's happened in history or will happen is all revolving around plan A. That's where everything finds its essence. So it's critical. So now we're going to skip a little bit and we're going to talk about the creation narratives. So the approach to be taken here is first to look carefully at the creation narratives and learn from them what it means to be human in the individual sense. Do you see, I'm going to pause there. Do you see how we're almost talking about Truman, right, when, right? right? But how critical the Bible is for understanding where our culture is today. So Merrill's going to talk about what it means to be human in the individual sense. And second, to consider how humanity grew beyond such narrow particularity to form interpersonal and community relationships such as marriage, family, clan, tribe, and nation. Now, why would he start, why would Merrill start setting out uh, the path with those particulars? So the individual, then marriage, family, clan, tribe, and nation, because he's following biblical theology, because that's the way Moses laid it out. And you see the last in in that list, nation. Right. So to understand politics, you got to follow, you know, from a deep biblical level, you got to follow Moses talking about an individual, Adam, then a family, Adam and Eve, then a clan, well, a family, then a clan, then a tribe, then a nation and see how we got to the point where we are today. So we'll we'll begin tracing that out. So first of all, we've noted repeatedly that Genesis represents two creation narratives, one in Genesis chapter one through chapter two, verse three, and the other in Genesis chapter two, verse four through twenty five. Did you did most people point this out like in a negative sense? You know, oh, there's two accounts of creation in the Bible. And I would say, eh, sort of two accounts. I mean, I, I know what you're referring to, but it's not like two competing accounts. For instance, uh, narrative literature is, is a lot like storytelling. It's a lot like conversation. If I told you, Hampton, you know, Kathy and I uh, drove to Texas. And I say, yeah, we, we first drove down to Denver then we went through Colorado Springs, right? Then eventually we got down to, what's that pass? Oh, Raton it's, Pass. Raton, exactly. Yeah, we went through Raton Pass. Then we got into Texas, you know, New Mexico for a little bit. And then we got into Texas. And I give you that kind of detail. Right. And then you say, well, why'd you, why were you going down there? Oh, and then I say, well, 
we went down there because Kathy was going to a furniture market and blah, blah, blah. I'm not giving you two different accounts, right? right? I'm telling you about the Texas trip. It's just the first time I'm just focusing on, you know, places on a map. And the second time I'm focusing on on our family business and how we do that and so on. So those aren't two separate accounts. Those are, you know, telling the story one way and then telling the story the other way. A lot of people have that. I'll bet you if I asked you, which I think you told me one time, how you met Lori and and then you guys got married, you would you would tell me that story. I'll bet you if the next day I asked Lori, it would almost sound like a different story. Maybe so. <laughs> but you'd both be telling the same story, right? Essentially, they're not contradicting. They have different emphases and things like that. So the Genesis account in Genesis 1 and 2, it's the same account of creation. There's different emphases in each. So that's what he's going to explain. The former, that's the first chapter of Genesis, essentially is sometimes described as the cosmocentric account because of its all-embracing view of the origins of all things in heaven and earth. Whereas the latter, that's Genesis chapter two, essentially, is the anthropocentric, so-called because it focuses in on the creation of man. Right. Within each of these, however, only a few verses relate directly to man's creation. In the case of Genesis 1, verses 26 through 30 contain the whole record. In Genesis 2, the creation in the strict sense encompasses only verses 7 and then 21 through 22. Despite their brevity, each of these demands careful exegesis for each is rich with theological potential. So it's hugely important. You're in the creation account and it's going to get around to mankind because our endeavor that lies immediately in front of us at this point is to figure out exactly the purpose for mankind so that we can build from there and establish then the purpose of the family, the purpose of the clan, the tribe, and the nation. And we can figure out where the U.S. fits into all this. And we can do so through a biblical theological grid so that we're accurate. You know, the great thinkers we read about in uh, with Truman as our guide through his book, great thinkers, but they are not accurate. They're, they're smart. Their IQs surpass mine tremendously. That's not actually that hard to do, but they're not that accurate. Right. Another thing is you can one thing yeah. I met I met with the head of the Republican committee or whatever for Texas a couple weeks back and you know asking what can we do to change culture and he's he was like get involved in local politics. <clears throat> and in some ways that's sort of what you're talking about here, where it starts with the individual and the family, which you know, if you're you know, the training of children at the the on the school council the city council then this you know so, indeed so it is kind of similar in that process indeed that that's right and i understand that but you had you can't just get involved you gotta get involved knowing what you're doing and right. and keeping all of that underneath the umbrella we're sojourners and exiles right you you are not gonna create utopia <laughs> you're not going to create plan a short of God's timing. It doesn't mean don't try, but it means keep that, keep that in mind. Are you telling me not to polish the brass on a sinking <laughs> ship? I'm actually not saying I'm saying you can polish. I'm just saying, okay, keep, okay. keep in mind that thing. Just remember the ship is just remember the ship is sinking. Okay. <laughs> Exactly. And, and by the way, and we're sort of making fun, but some people are called more to a political vocation, right? More, more than others. Certainly, Joseph, highly political. Guy ran Egypt. Daniel ran Babylon. I mean, God, God has his people throughout history very much involved in human nations. So it's not a bad choice. Just keep in mind the big plan. So 
Back to Merrill. Oh, this is so critical. You got to focus now. After having created everything else in five days, on day six, the Lord made that Hebrew verb at that point is asa, both wild and domesticated land animals, and then created man. And that verb for create is bara, different than the animals. The animals were made, man was created. There's a, we'll talk about that difference. Though one should not make too much distinction between these two verbs, since they are sometimes used interchangeably, it's nonetheless a fact that bara, the, the verb that was used for creating man, occurs in the Hebrew Bible as a verb of creation with only God as the subject. In other words, in the Hebrew Bible, you know, mankind makes certain things. They build a city or, or they build furniture um, for the temple and stuff like that. Mankind can make, you know, asa things. Only, uh-huh. only God creates that, that word bara okay. that's only used with God's creation. So furthermore, in many of these instances, bara as opposed to other verbs such as asa or etzer, connotes the idea of creation out of nothing. It connotes that. It doesn't mean that explicitly, but it it connotes that creation out of nothing. Create creation ex nihilo. We say this is clearly the case in Genesis one verse one. Right in the beginning. Right. God created the heavens and the earth since there's no hint whatsoever in the text of material preexistent to the heavens and the earth from which they were made. I'm going to pause here because this point is going to have further application down the road. You know, what's being contested essentially in the United States today is capitalism versus Marxism versus you know, socialism slash communism. But keep in mind, even though they'll, they'll label certain things socialism, the stated goal of socialism is communism. So really, you can just say communism. Okay, that, that's what, those are the two entities battling it out. Uh, communism at its core is atheistic. So right. even if, put mankind aside for a second, even the creation itself out of nothing is a critical distinction politically. That means there's a creator. Right. See, the, the communist doesn't, you know, just thinks, well, even though very few, I, I don't know of any really that think the universe is eternal, even the physicist, I don't know a single one that thinks the universe has always been here. They all think there's been a beginning. They just don't like that. Some of them will say, well, it's a cyclical thing. It goes in and out of existence. (laughs) You're just jumping through hoops to get away from the fact that you know the fact that it had a beginning means it had a beginner. (laughs) It it has to mean that. Well, that was something I think we were reading in Truman book about Nietzsche recognized the inconsistency. If you do away, if you do away with God, you're going to have to replace it with something, right? Right. And he didn't like talking about Mother Nature or natural law requires a lawgiver. He had right. he had statements like that. It, it has to. They they know that. They know now they might just not talk about it sometimes, but now and then, you know, they have to mention it. But it because it's compelling in the direction of biblical theology. And they they don't want that. They don't want a creator. They don't want, really what they don't want is the authority that's associated with that, right? They don't want to answer to anyone. Yeah, I don't remember that guy's name. He was a atheist scientist, but he, he recognized all of this and he said, but we just could not allow a divine foot in the door. Right, right. Right. Because it gets so compelling so quickly. And, and what would happen is you might get saved, 
because it would be so compelling that there is a God and that you're accountable to him and that you've dropped the ball. And how do you fix that? <laughs> well, and what we say have said on our previous podcast, I, I love them, Truman, on the uh, a worldview podcast. Well, if the way you got in trouble was believing a lie, well, the way you get out of trouble is you believe the truth. So, you know, we've, right. We've danced around that question all morning. You know, what is the gospel? It's say you boil it all down. It's essentially believing the truth that everything comes from that idea that that's how you're saved. You believe the truth. Remember um, Romans, Paul quoting Moses, who's writing about Abraham saying, Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, eight, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's salvation. You believe God. You don't believe God. That's damnation. Salvation is you believe him. It's right. as simple as that, really. So if, if you saw me, you know, back when I was an atheist and you put it in those terms, I, you know, I'd probably disagree with you, but I would at least understand what you're talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. okay, back to Merrill. A straightforward reading suggests that apart from God himself, nothing existed until he spoke it into being. Let me pause because I want to point something out there that's critical. He says a straightforward reading. Why would you read any other way? (laughs) But that's an interesting question. The reason is because it's back to what we just said, because it gets very compelling very quickly if you read straightforwardly. Right. Yeah, I agree. So the second use. So the first use right? God, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, bara, only God is used, that verb's only used with God as the subject, and essentially it connotes made out of nothing. The second use of bara in the narrative appears in verse 21, which marks a major distinction between the fourth and fifth day. Up until day five, no living creatures whatsoever had come into being. It's all the the material universe. So once you get to the fifth day, though, light, darkness, the skies, the seas, vegetation, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of these had appeared, but nothing yet called a living thing had emerged. Their creation, therefore, like the living thing creation, marked a significant step forward. Creatures, according to their kinds, that were totally unrelated to anything that had preceded them. What set them apart was the fact that they were alive, possessing in some sense the breath of life in impartation from God hitherto unknown. So the creation of living things uses the verb in verse 21, bara, created by God. In, in, In other words, connoting ex nihilo. And the living things are described that they were created after their kinds. In other words, the, the word min is used there, the Hebrew preposition. So bara min has actually become a biological term in science today. Christian scientists have said, you know, we need to use this term bara min to describe, to combat what you guys are erroneously saying that things were created right on their own, no creator, they evolved and they spread out into all the different life forms that you see. And the Christian biologists are going, no, things are created after their kinds, their baramins. So for instance, God could have made the original dog and you could have dog species from that, but you're not gonna get a giraffe from a dog right? The, right. Things, things stay within their categories. In other words, that, that's what the term baramin today means in the, in the science world. But, and you can see there, that, again, the reason Genesis is not read straightforwardly is because it very straightforwardly rules out evolution, if you just read it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, clearly, 
he's making things ex nihilo. He doesn't say he evolved a, a camel or a donkey. He's saying he's created the living things after their kinds. So back to Merrill. The third occurrence of Barah is in the reference to the creation of man. Genesis 1.27. God had said, let us make man, verse 26. And the result is that he created him. That is the bara word, he created. The making is generic. The creating is specific. When he says, let us make man, that's asa. But when he says, so he created man, that's bara. So making is general, creating is specific. That is, man was made like everything else, but only he along with the heavens and the earth and the living creatures is said to have been created. The uniqueness of the heavens and the earth needs no comment. As for the living creatures, their distinction from all that preceded them lay in their possessing the breath of life. What then was there about man that set him apart from both the heavens and the earth and all other living beings? The answer lies not in the fact that he had the breath of life, though that distinguished him from the inanimate universe, but that the breath of life was communicated by divine inbreathing and not merely through the spoken word. We're going to look at that later on. The animals have the breath of life, but they weren't breathed into. Mankind okay. was breathed into, sets them apart from all the other animals. I think. So let's look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We're about, Hampton, are you holding on? You following? You tracking? Because we're about. Yeah, I'm, I'm tracking. <laughs> I know you are. We're about three quarters of the way through, but this, we're going to get to something so critical. It's, you, you might wonder about what I'm saying. But my authority is Eugene Merrill. Okay, so we're going to read the biblical text, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. So after God created the animals, verse 26, then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the cattle, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. Wow, <laughs> you could unpack those verses forever. Yeah, that's just that's just amazing. Let's look at that. To return to Genesis chapter one, twenty six through twenty eight, it's instructive to observe the literary structure. So imagine, I'm going to step outside of Merrill real quickly. Imagine that you're a surgeon and you're going to do surgery on the text of chapter one, verse 26 through 28. You need some tools okay. to do that. Hebrew style has two dominant features. Um, one is parallelism. One is right. key, chiasm. They, they often arrange things in those orders, even when they're writing narrative, even when they're telling a story, they're often using chiasm and parallelism to do that. So look at uh, chapter one, verse 26, the first line. So line A, God's description of man's nature. Line B, same verse, God's description of man's purpose. Next line, God's creation of man. 
God's commission to make, you see how parallel that is, 26 and 20, basically saying the same thing. Now, Hebrews, Hebrew style isn't childish. They don't repeat things because they feel, you know, Moses isn't repeating this because he feels like he's talking to a child and unless he repeats it twice right. you're not gonna, you're not going to get it there, so repetition has nothing to do with um you know getting it through to a stupid listener repetition is like fulfillment it's like blowing up a balloon it's like here's the balloon here's the balloon with air in it right right so in, in emphasis it's, it's emphasis. It's, it's, it's emphasis, except that it happens so often. It's like putting an exclamation point at the end of every sentence that you write. So that's, I don't, I don't know if emphasis is the right thing. The emphasis is, is only t tangential to the idea. It's more the idea of fulfilling it. So okay. when you say, for instance, you know, he created man and you use the verb asa, and then you say, he created man and you use the verb bara, you're filling out what you mean by asa. It, it, here's, okay. here's, another, here's another example. You know this from all your work you've done on, on the text itself, textual criticism. You're a, a genius in that field. So <laughs> for instance, when the, in Isaiah, when they refer to the Messiah coming from a woman, they use the term Alma, right? Right. Which means young woman, essentially. But that's a, okay, young woman. That's, you're getting some detail there. But in Greek, they have a particular word within the category of young woman that means virgin. In, in Greek, they could say young woman also, but what they thought was inherent in the Hebrew word, young woman, was the fact that she was a virgin. So they use the word parthenos, right? Right. So you see how much more fulfilling that is? Young woman is a fairly broad category. Virgin is very specific. So with repetition, when you lay ideas out uh, next to each other, the second go round of the idea adds critical detail. You're not advancing the big picture. You're advancing the precision of the picture. Well, I was just dealing with that in Isaiah 61, where it said that he released the captives and then he yep. set free the yep. prisoners. Yes. And so that's a repetition of the idea. And the thing I was looking into was why does it say nothing about blind people since in Luke four, it yes. says he healed the blind. And so um, that was, that's, I'm still trying to figure out how to explain <laughs> that, but, <laughs> but yeah. the, the, the repetition idea has caused every English translation in Isaiah 61 to go with, um, setting free the prisoners because it's parallel to releasing, you know, setting free the captives in the previous line. Exactly. And, and, and so, but the idea of prisoners coming out of the dark is, is similar to blind people who are healed coming out of the dark. Exactly. And so it's, but yeah, the parallelism is um, interesting. It is. So, and here's another analogy, you know, from the biology world, like for instance, when uh, naturalists observe an eagle and he's hunting, he's flying over the river or he's flying over a field, they can tell you that that eagle has a search image in his mind. And if he sees a rodent of a certain kind or whatever, or a fish, just under the surface that instantly registers to him. And he focuses in on that and then go, goes and makes his kill and he's got lunch, right? right? That's because he has that search image already in his mind for that particular prey. So we as readers of God's word need to have search images in our mind. When you see repetition, your brain needs to focus in on that 
Okay, the author Moses or whoever's the author at that point is not repeating because he didn't know what to say. So he's just saying he's doing that for a very specific reason. So pay attention to it. Read both lines in relationship to each other and get the point that he's making. Or if you see chiasm, zero in on that. We'll talk about that at a, at a later point when we have a really good example of it. Well, I have to but, I have to point something out or bring something up. Um, when we were talking about Shelley and how he thought that the importance of poetry was that it um, appealed to your emotions. Yes. Right. And then you brought up the idea that I uh, mentioned that that's true of like Isaiah or oh, yeah. you know, all the poetry in the Bible. It actually has uh, revolutionized my reading of Isaiah th this morning. I was like, Oh, okay. I'm looking at this, you know, I'm, I'm appreciating that more. Yes. You know, instead yeah. of all this non-rhyming poetry. It, <laughs> yeah. And here's a, I'm so happy to even hear that, <laughs> but it's so funny too. You, you know why the Hebrew poetry, why, why rhyme really is not a factor for them. Uh, about 80% of their words rhyme. So oh, that's true. That's true. Okay. Well, I have right? to, this is a, a Bible translation trivia. Um, the international standard version um, was created probably 10 years ago. I actually was the guy that formatted all the documents for them for Logos and ebooks e and stuff. But um, they actually made their poetry in the Bible rhyme. So if you're reading the Psalms and the Proverbs, they all rhyme in English. So that was a little bit different. Yeah, I said, I don't understand the the wisdom of that but you know it's been, just learn hebrew and then read it that way <laughs> you know oh, that's that's funny though but it you you warm my heart because if if you know one of my goals for the podcast just one of them i have an overarching goal but one of them is if we can uh, foster a deeper reading of the scriptures by our listeners man i'll stand before god someday to, be really happy about that. I mean, he will say you did a good job with that. Yeah. If that if that's the case, if we can pass those things on, you know, that's another good way to consider your life. Is um, you know, someday you're going to give an account. the The first class I ever took of uh, graduate school was not through Dallas Seminary. It was through Western Seminary. So I took it, you know, remotely, okay. and it was hermeneutics with Earl Rodmacher. Let me tell you how brilliantly this class was designed. So you, you would get the videotapes of it. Basically, they would just tape, you know, his lectures of the hermeneutics class and, and send them to you. So you'd get it through videotape. But here's how they graded you. You had to find at least five other people and teach them the class. Oh, really? And, and they sent those people who are, you weren't limited to five, but it had to be at least five. They sent those people a final exam and oh, whatever, wow. whatever they got was your grade. That boy, I have never forgotten that lesson that, that just taught me so much, you know, for, forget the class of hermeneutics, which was so valuable in, in and of itself, but how to live life, you know, that for instance, I'm, certain that when I stand before the Lord, the first question he's going to ask me is, let me see Kathy. Let me see Sophia. And that's going to be my grade. Uh, how they did is going to be my grade. I mean, it's when you start looking at life that way, it's so compelling. It is. So, so in fact, what do you think? Should we close it here? Because I've got some really good stuff we're going to get into, but it's so good. I don't want to make it just the appendix to today. Yeah, I think we've probably been going long enough. So okay. Let's do. It's going to be so exciting next weekend. You're going to have to maintain your excitement that you had today all the way through next week. It's going to be so cool. Okay. Well, I'm excited about doing Truman on Thursday. Yeah, me, so. me too. Okay. Well, I'll talk to you next time.
Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect.